Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a sermon from Douglas Wilson entitled, Desire Runs Deep, from the series Desire, Envy, Competition, Ambition. Listen to the full sermon series available now on Canon Plus. Well, we are in the midst of a series on desire, envy, competition, and ambition. We've considered desire and envy, and I want to build on what we've covered there. And we're coming now to address the issue of competition. And it's good to see that people are in the congregation are discussing it and taking these things to heart. I was uh, talking to one father in the congregation who said they were having a um, dinner table conversation filled with much hilarity. And one of the uh, one of the kids in the family brought up the issue of humility and her older brother said, my humility will body slam your humility. <laughs> it's always good to see application. <laughs> We've come now to competition. Now, this is something that's dear to the heart of most Americans, and we have to be careful about it because this is something that we have been universally trained to regard as a good thing, and because those voices raised against it in the political or business spheres are usually frequently the voices of carping and envy and people who don't know up from down, the critiques that are brought against competition are are frequently uh, misguided in the extreme. And we've been trained to think, well, this is a good thing. We have to guard our step. We've We've heard many times, you've heard many times from this pulpit, that one of the things we must learn how to do is how to repent of our virtues. There are sins that everyone knows to be sins. Even non-Christians know certain things to be sins. And when we do them, we are ashamed of them. And we know that we have to repent of our vices. We have to repent of those things we do when we know that we've stumbled in this regard. But the thing that is a real stumbling block for many people in the church is there are virtues that we've we've enshrined as virtues, and they aren't really virtues. They are virtues that are according to the traditions of men and not virtues according to the scriptures. And this subject, the issue of competition, is a good place to start. On the issue of competition, this is a good place to learn how to repent of our virtues. All right, now, when I say repent of your virtues, of course, I'm putting virtues in quotation marks. You're not supposed to repent of the fruit of the Spirit as the, as the Spirit works those things into you. Love, joy, peace, patience. You don't repent of love, joy, peace, patience. But you, you must repent of those things that we have sometimes grabbed and thought to be godly, and we've institutionalized them, put them in our lives in a wrong way or in a wrong fashion or in the wrong place. This passage in Philippians is taken from the chapter in which the perfect humility of Christ was exalted to the highest place. The perfect humility of Christ, the perfect stooping of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God where he consented to go to death on the cross, was God the Father responded to this by declaring him to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, and uh, the, the Son of God ascended into heaven, into the heavenly places, where he was given honor, honor dominion, and authority. His, his name is above every name that can be named. This is the natural consequence of humility. Now, we have two extremes in this fallen world. We have people who want to go the route of humility, and they don't want to be raised up again. They want to go into the trough of humility, and they want to wallow there, and they don't want to receive what God does. 
Humble yourself, James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you must consent to it when he comes to lift you up. If you insist on staying there on the ground, face down in the dirt, saying, no, no, I'm a worm, I'm a wretch, I won't let you uh, lift me up. I know you're God, and I know you want to lift me up, but I think I belong down here. The name for that is not humility. Right? That's not humility. No, God. No, I'm not going to let you lift me up. There are people who want to wallow in total depravity. They want to wallow in their sinfulness. They've got a worm theology. That's a problem. But then we have the breezy problem where people want to go straight to the exaltation. They want to go straight to the highest place. They want to go to the banquet and take the highest seat there. And Jesus tells us explicitly what's going to happen to them. And we're going to consider that in more detail when we consider ambition next week. We have people who want to go to humility and stay stuck in humility, which is not true humility. And we have People who want to go straight to the exaltation and they want to grab that first. And of course, that's not true exaltation. In order to have true exaltation in in the way God determines in the scripture, you have to have the cross and then the crown. It's not the other way. It's not the cross and no resurrection. It's not the crown and no cross. The way God has structured this world, it's the cross and then the crown. The servant is not greater than his master. And if our master took that route. If our master humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and then God exalted him, that's the path as Christians that we must follow. So when Christ was exalted to the highest place, this is not presented to us in this chapter as a striking anomaly, but rather it's central to what Christians are called to imitate. When Paul says in this chapter, he says, um, Uh, In verse 1, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Then the verses that I read, and then in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The whole point of this chapter is that every Christian, every Christian disciple, is to be an imitator of Christ at this point. Every Christian is called and summoned to imitate Christ in this humility and exaltation, to imitate him as he travels this particular path. So how many things are we allowed to do in our lives because of striving? Verse 3, he says, let nothing be done through strife. So how many things does that add up to? Well, it's a short list. Let nothing be done from strife. Nothing. How about vainglory? How many things are we allowed to do because of vainglory, because we're puffing ourselves up, because we want the applause, because we have one eye on the stands, because we're looking at people so that that they will praise us? How many things are we allowed to do through vainglory? Nothing again. What should our mindset be toward others? St. Paul replies that we should consider them better. He says we should consider them better, that is, more important than we do ourselves. This is to be our central disposition. This is to be characteristic of how our minds go. Now, obviously, whenever we talk about ethical duties, whenever we talk about how we as Christians can live, there's a way of gritting your teeth and trying to make it happen on your own steam, which is works righteousness, and we always must reject works righteousness. At the same time, you can't imitate Christ without imitating Christ, 
right? If you imitate Christ, you've got to do what he's doing. And it's not just do, you're not just doing what he's doing on the outside. What You're imitating the whole demeanor. You're imitating the heart, which of course is impossible to do unless the Holy Spirit gives you the, a gracious heart, unless the Holy Spirit works in your heart. This and But this is what the work looks like when he does it. So Paul says in verse 4 that we are not to look on our own things, verse 4, but also on the things of others. That also is an important word. He says, don't just look on your own things, but also on the, other, on the things of others. You don't want to be trapped in a situation of two, two Christians going through a door. Um, you first. No, you first. No, I insist. You first. No, you first. And neither of them ever, ever, really ever make it through the door because they're both applying Philippians 2. Um, you are to live in such a way that you consider the other person you consider the other person's needs and you also are watching over your own things. That's sort of taken as a given. You're not supposed to totally abdicate. You're not supposed to throw everything away. You're not supposed to throw all your responsibilities away. You're supposed to consider the other person and as you also consider yourself. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, contrary to our th- therapeutic society. We don't have to strive to learn how to love ourselves. That's taken as a given. Many people say, well, I'll get to my neighbor eventually. I need 12 years of therapy, um, a year for each step. And then after, after 12 years of therapy, then I'll, I'll see about loving my neighbor and see if he's improved and gotten uh, to a level where I can try and love him. No, what the, the scripture says, when you love your neighbors as you love yourself, it presupposes that you love yourself already. When Paul applies that in Ephesians 5, he says, no man ever hated his own flesh. That's a given. No man ever uh, despised his own flesh. That's a given. So you already, you take care of your own stuff. You, you have this natural disposition to watch out for what God has given you. And you're to take that as a standard without abandoning it. You're supposed to take that as a standard for your treatment of others. So this is a comparative statement in verse 4. It's not an absolute statement. It's similar to when Paul tells each of us to carry our own burden in Galatians 6, 5. All of us are supposed to carry our own weight. All of us are supposed to... uh, We're we're not supposed to flake out. We're supposed to contribute. Everybody's supposed to take care of themselves. Everyone's to carry their own burden, he says in Galatians Galatians 6, 5. But this is fully consistent with his charge just a few verses early, earlier for us to carry one another's burdens in Galatians 6.2. How is it possible for everybody to carry their own weight and everybody to carry everybody else's weight? How are we supposed to carry our own burdens? Make sure you carry your own burden. All right. Pull your own weight and make sure that you bear one another's burdens. Only the mind of Christ can sort this out. This is an operation of the, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this. We're going to consider later in Acts where it says of the early church and great grace was upon them all. When the Holy Spirit works, this is the way it looks. You don't have massive irresponsibility with people uh, just sort of throwing themselves onto a welfare state created by the church. All right. Well, we're all bearing one another's burdens. Take care of me now. That's not great grace on us. Neither is scrabbling and, and, and fighting and taking care of our own issues and ignoring what other people are, how other people are faring in the church, neither is that an example of great grace being upon us all. 
When great grace is upon us, we see personal responsibility at the highest degree and love and sharing and community also operating at a very high degree. That's how the Holy Spirit works. There's a laissez-faire approach to competition that's very important for the civil magistrate to remember when it comes to the question of him restricting, regulating, organizing, and otherwise botching economic activity. Um, if If the humanists had their way, if the socialists had their way, if the collectivists had their way, we could give them responsibility for Hawaii. We'll just give them responsibility for Hawaii, and we'd say, and we'd like you to regulate salt water, and it wouldn't be long before they had a shortage, right? This kind of thing doesn't work. Socialism doesn't work. Collectivism doesn't work. Or the, the government trying to step into uh, economic activity and interfere with the laissez-faire, the letter-rip approach, doesn't work. But as you've been reminded many times, there's a difference between sins and crimes. There's a difference between sim, sins and crimes. Just because something ought not to be criminal, right? It ought not to be criminal to uh, open up a business and make money. It ought not to be criminal to compete with another established business in a, in a way that gives them a run for their money. That, those sorts of things ought not to be criminal, Right. If you, um, well, no, I won't go there. The, the issue is that the civil magistrate doesn't have the competence or the authority from God to step into this realm and regulate businesses like this. And, uh, but the fact that many people just assume that if it's legal, it must be therefore moral. If it's legal, it must be okay. But just because something ought not to be criminal with penalties attached and because we don't have any biblical warrant for attaching penalties to certain activities, that doesn't mean that whatever that activity is, is therefore healthy and non-sinful. Lust, for example, ought not to be against the law. Lust ought not to be against the law. And by this, I mean lust in your heart. You would, none of you, I trust, none of you, I hope, would like it very much if you're just walking down the street, minding your own business, and a cop came up and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take you in. And you said, why? And he said, well, you had lust in your heart. You were breaking the 10th commandment. You'd say, you can't know that, right? How, how, how can you establish it? How can you meet the biblical criteria of justice? You don't have two and three witnesses. You, you're not competent to deal with that. That's a, that's a sin of the heart. And, but here's the, the point I'm making. Just because the civil magistrate doesn't have the competence to arrest you because they discerned lust in your heart, it does not follow from that that lust in your heart is okay. There is such a thing as lust in your heart. There is such a thing as the sin of grasping and avarice and greed and lust. But the civil magistrate ought not to be able to touch that. He ought not to be able to make a law against it because he's not competent to prove it. This, and, and if the government attempts to make uh, intentions uh, illegal, if the government is attempting to make the thoughts and discernment, the, the thoughts and intents of your heart uh, something illegal, this means that they are aspiring to omniscience. They're aspiring to be deity. They want to be in charge of your heart. This is why, incidentally, while I'm here, this is why we've had a resurgence of, this is why we have laws now prohibiting hate crimes. 
Why do we have laws prohibiting hate crimes? Well, to distinguish these hate crimes from all the early other kinds of crimes, which are must apparently be love crimes. <laughs> well, never mind. So the civil magistrate is not competent to outlaw greed either. And all messianic attempts to outlaw greed have been consistently disastrous. Messianic attempts where the government is aspiring to deity, trying to outlaw uh, the thoughts and intents of your hearts. I think you love money too much, and so we're going to take a little bit more away from you. That sort of thing is disastrous because civil magistrate, the civil magistrate is made up of fallen, sinful human beings also. And guess what? They have greed in their hearts, too. They have sin problems also. Now, there are Christians who see this and who conclude from it that a letter-rip attitude should be allowed everywhere because the civil magistrate ought not to step into the marketplace and try to make everything come out nice and tidy. That means that there's nothing to be said about this anywhere. The only time greed will ever be brought up is at the last judgment because God's the only one who can see it. No, the civil magistrate is not prohibited from addressing greed because it is an invisible sin. It's not invisible. Greed is not an invisible sin. Other governments that God has created are charged in Scripture to deal with it. These other governments, the governments that God has established, are civil government, family government, and the government of the church. The civil government has no warrant. There's no warrant in Scripture for the civil government to step into the marketplace and try to regulate greed. But it is not true that there is no objective manifestation of greed that people who are close to you cannot see. A family can see and identify what their problem is. In Proverbs 15, 27, it says, He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. He that is greedy for gain, greedy of gain, troubleth his own house. But he that hateth gifts, that is bribes, he that hateth gifts shall live. A person who's grasping, a person who is um, filled with avarice, the person who is greedy, that manifests itself in his personal dealings, in his business dealings, in his dealings with family. And it's obvious. And when the family is troubled because of greed, the family can identify where that problem is. In 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, we can also see the same thing with regard, when they're talking about requirements for elders. We see the same thing, the same requirement for deacons in 3.8. It says this, not given to wine, no striker, not guilty of filthy lucre, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. So the church is required to exclude from ecclesiastical office men who are greedy. All right, you're supposed to exclude from office men who are greedy. Now, if someone wants to be an elder and you say, no, you can't be an elder because the Bible says a one woman man and you've got you've got three wives. You may not be an elder. That's an objective thing. The church, the body, the congregation can say we don't want to uh, elect this man an elder because we don't believe he fits the qualifications that the Bible describes in First Timothy three. When it says a man ought not to be greedy. And if he is greedy, he ought not to be established as an elder in the church. This means that. It's visible. And we, we also see that um, the same requirement of, of prohibiting greed with civil government in a limited respect. The civil government must not give way to this sin itself. In Exodus 18, 21, it says that you are not to, uh, that if a man is to be established as a civil 
ruler, he must be one who hates covetousness. Civil rulers must hate covetousness. Now, notice the difference. This, this is very similar to the requirement for the church, where the rulers of the state, the rulers in the state, must hate covetousness themselves. But the ruler in the state has no marching orders from God to go uh, into, the, into the streets of the city and make war on covetousness in people's hearts to say, well, I think you're charging that much for these uh, for this product on your shelves because there's greed in your heart. The civil magistrate doesn't have the authority to do that. So the Bible requires us not to elect officials unless they hate covetousness. We've taken this to mean that we shouldn't vote for them unless they are steeped in it. Our political parties taken together constitute a society for the prevention of cruelty to money. There is, uh, There are an awful lot of people who are saying that mammon... All right, mammon, which Jesus identifies as an idol, is the thing that justifies any number of transactions. And the fact that we think that transactions otherwise lawful in the scriptures ought not to be regulated by the government does not mean that there can be no sin attached to it and does not mean that the church shouldn't address it prophetically. The church needs to say that materialism, consumerism, rampant chasing after to the rampant chasing after money in an idolatrous way is a public sort of thing, and we should be able to address it. But being addressing it as a sin is not the same thing as making it criminal. All right, that's those are two separate issues. So the fact that even a good civil government, even a biblical civil civil government, is not competent to outlaw greed does not mean that no entity is competent to deal with it. The family and the church must deal with it, and the civil government in, in civil affairs, we should be careful to deal with it by seeking to elect people, vote for people who are uh, who hate covetousness, men who know that mammon is a competitor with Christ. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, let's bring this back to the text, because I want to get to this question of competition, and I want to bring it down to uh, street level, the place where we live. In our text, the word better is a rendering of hooper echo. What does the lowliness of mind require of us in this? Paul tells us that we should have lowliness of mind, and we should consider others better than ourselves. Remember that we are trying to build by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit of God, we are trying to build the mind of Christ here, which cannot be done out of two-by-fours. You can't just take a verse and mechanically apply it, woodenly apply it. We tend to read the English here as requiring us to believe that the other person is better at doing whatever it is we might be comparing, which is obviously crazy. Right? So if, if a person has been playing the piano for 50 years and someone else has just started taking piano lessons last week, and they're still plinking away with the Columbus method, which is discover and land. You know, you just, you, you find the key and the tongue sticking out of the side of your mouth. The, the 50, 50 year, um, uh, the piano player for f- 50 years is not obligated to believe that this novice on the piano is a better piano player than he is. How, how can how can he believe that? How can he assume that? In in order to assume that, he has to adopt a worldview that's obviously crazy. It's false. He, uh, humility humility is not required to believe a lie. Humility is not required to believe something that's obviously self evidently false. But because the word we trip over that word better, 
we make it a superficial roadblock, and we dismiss the entire problem from our, from our minds. But this is dangerous. The word hooper, hooper echo can also be rendered as to be above, to stand out, to be, to be more important than. That does not make the other person automatically right in a dispute. It does not make the other person superior in his abilities. Right? A a basketball player who can dunk a basketball is not required to believe that a three-year-old boy with a a ball is better at dunking the basketball than he is. That's not what this means. Remember, the, the point of this whole passage is for us to imitate the Lord Jesus in this. When he became a man, he did so because he believed we were better in this sense than he was. Now, Jesus did not believe his disciples were better at understanding the Old Testament scriptures than he was. He taught them, not the other way around. He didn't say, well, well, who am I to say what this? Peter, what do you think it means? You know, That's not what it means. False humility says, oh, I don't know, I can't do this. Jesus spoke with authority and not like the scribes. The humility of mind that gives itself away is not one that sort of throws away all standards. Jesus became a man, he taught, he ministered, he did everything he did in his earthly ministry, up to and including his death and his resurrection. He did all that because he believed we were better in this sense. He was putting our interests ahead of his own. This obviously has to mean the sense of more important, more valued. He loved us more than he loved himself. He gave himself away for us. He valued us. He valued our lives more than he valued his life. That's what this means. Jesus did not die for us because we were better than he in some moral sense or intellectual sense. He died for us because he loved us more than he loved his own life. Jesus died for us because he loved us. So the issue is humility and love. And nothing in this requires us to embrace absurdities. So go, go back to the example of the person who's been playing the piano for so many years. Is it possible for the long-time piano player to objectively believe that the plinker is better at piano playing than he is? No. If he did so, if he adopted that, he's obviously lost his mind. That's, not, that's obviously contrary to what is. Is it possible for a piano player who's been playing, you know, practices, practicing six hours, hours a day for decade after decade. Is it possible for such a piano player to consider the interests of the weak old, uh, the weak old piano player as more important than his own playing? Yes. And that's what Jesus did. That's the attitude that Jesus had. So a person who's more experienced, more uh, uh, better equipped, understands certain things better can defer to defer to someone who doesn't have it together in the same way. And that's the attitude of love and humility. Now, sometimes love and humility, you might say, well, doesn't that mean that the most experienced Christian, the most humble Christian, the most astute Christian is always going to be letting everything be messed up by others? You know, you do it. No. Did Jesus ever rebuke his disciples? Yes. Did he do it because he was irritated? No. Did he do it because he loved them? And that needed to be put right? Yes. All right. So when you correct, when you teach, when you instruct, when you defer, when you refuse to defer, whatever it is you do, whether you're deferring or refusing to defer, you must be doing it because you're giving. You're giving to the other person. 
There are times, many times, many times a day, when parents refuse to defer to their little children. When, parent, uh, when parents, godly parents, say, no, uh, you're not in charge. Uh, if, if you were in charge, it'd be ice cream every meal, every day. It'd be no naps. It'd be no, no nothing. If you were in charge, you would, cert- you would quickly and rapidly run your little body straight into the ground. And I love you. And I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to defer to you, but I'm not going to defer to you because of my love and humility and sacrifice. I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you. And that's the way Jesus was with his disciples. The issue is humility and love. And nothing in this requires us to embrace absurdity. So let's consider this issue of bearing burdens. Our task is to learn how to bear our own burden, providing for our own family, meeting our own responsibilities, at the same time that we are careful to bear one another's burdens, holding to a true fellowship of goods, right? How to bear your own burden and how to bear one another's burdens. The early Christians kept their property, kept their own property. We can see this in Acts 5, verse 4. When You recall when Ananias and Sapphira uh, wanted to get credit for having given more than they actually had given, they sold um, they sold the land, and they came in and lied about it. And when they did this, this is what was said to them in response. And Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? So you have no indication, no hint that the church was sending people around to collect everybody's income tax returns. Or, all right, everybody sell your property, and we want to see the bill of sale, and we want to see how much is on the bill of sale because we hold all goods in common here in the early church. We demand to see that. No, it wasn't that way at all. Peter says, Ananias, this land is yours. While it remained, it was your land. Once you sold it, it was your money. It's your land and your money, because going back to Corinthians, Paul tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. The principle in the church that everyone should give as he is determined in his own heart to give. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. When the constraint comes, the constraint comes from the Holy Spirit and not from high pressure techniques from fundraisers or guilt manipulators or anything like that. At the same time, a few chapters earlier, and uh, just a, a, a chapter earlier, it says in Acts 4 that they had all things in common. Acts 4, 32 and 33. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that he ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, uh, we, need to understand, uh, we need to understand the context of this, but we don't want to understand the context, uh, context of this in such a way that we explain it away or take the force of it away. Remember that this is in Jerusalem. And remember, basically what I think a, lo- a large portion of this was, was the ultimate in insider trading. The ultimate in insider trading. Uh, Jesus had said, in effect, within one generation, real estate prices in this area are going to go, are going to tank. All right, the Roman army is going to come. They're going to level everything. And the early Christians believed him. He said, "When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, head for the hills." And he said, "When you see it happening, don't even go down in your house to get your stuff. Just 
get, you know, head for the tall grass. And the early Christians, I believe, um, believed him right out of the starting gates and they began to liquidate their properties right away. And they began to sell them off right away. And when they did this, and this is the point, some people want to say, Oh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's why they sold their land. And then we don't have to do the other stuff that it illustrates here. No, no, great grace was upon them. And they did not forget the poor when they did this. They didn't forget the poor when they did this. But they were preparing themselves for the destruction of Jerusalem. But they didn't, the church didn't require them to sell. The church didn't require them to give any particular percentage once they had sold. Apart from the tithe, which is God's tax, you've got tithes and offerings. God requires the tithe, not the church, and uh, and the offerings are up to you. Every man should give as he's purposed in his own heart to give, because God loves a cheerful giver. So in the early church, great grace was upon them all. They shared a fellowship of goods, and they did it without coercion. They did it without any kind of manipulation or coercion or demand. In fact, when the Ananias and Sapphira had a problem, not because they didn't give, but because they wanted credit for having given when they hadn't. That was the problem. They'd lied to the Holy Spirit and to God. Now, we began this series of messages on desire and envy. And these are problems that run down the middle of every human heart. How are we to pursue? How are we to pray for? How are we to be hungry for God's grace to be resting upon us as a congregation? We are, uh, as we're growing and flourishing in a small town. Many of you are in professions and vocations which are competing for the same customers. Right? You're, you're in situations where you can't all have the same thing. You can't all do it the same way. How are we to do this? How are we to function here? How are, how are we to compete like Christians? Desire and envy... Run down the middle of every human heart. So the first thing is you want to deal with all the big problems there first. And don't think that 30 seconds of reflection or a yeah, uh uh-huh, intellectual assent is going to do the trick. Just because, let's say you're, uh, let's say you've adopted a particular vocation and then someone else in the church opens up a shop or opens up a a business or an office that you you think is going to steal customers away. They didn't do that because they're an orc. They didn't do that because they're an orc. But if you measure things by your own desire, if you measure things by your own envy, you're going to think that they did that because they're an orc. They researched this. They plotted carefully. People must have dished up some dirt on you and brought it to them because they are coming in to let you have it. Well, you want to make sure that in all these things, in all forms of competition, guard your own heart. First, I should say something um, j- just in passing here. When we're talking about competition, one of the things that I think is sadly, sadly neglected in Christian education is the opportunity that uh, uh, competition in sports provides to identify basic spiritual problems in this area. Um, chasing a ball in the ultimate cosmic scheme of things does not matter. Right. Um, chasing a ball is not the most important thing in the world, but chasing a ball oftentimes reveals a lot about the most important things in the world, like where your heart is. I've sometimes joked, frequently joked that the, I think the reason they play volleyball at at 
uh, conferences and retreats is so the visiting speaker can get a good assessment of the spiritual condition of everybody there because volleyball games manifest that in drastic and dramatic ways. So what happens is in, in sports competition, you are dealing with something. Two things are going on. One is comparatively unimportant, but the other is very important. How do I compete like a Christian? How do I um, do my best to get ahead at the same time looking out for the best of the others on the team? How, how do I do this? How do I balance this? How do I learn how the Holy Spirit works? Under the mentorship of a wise, biblical, godly coach, This is one of the most important lessons that any of us can learn. And one of the reasons why many people do so poorly in business and do so poorly in competition and other areas is they've never been trained. This this has never um, come up. It's not come up the way it ought to have come up. When you compete, uh, uh, another illustration of this, when I I was in boot camp in the Navy, uh, the, the Navy um, was obsessive about certain things. And I can still tell you, for example, this was 35 years ago. I can still tell you how to fold a t-shirt the way they demanded that you fold a t-shirt. And you had three of them and you had to stack them in your locker. You had to fold them. I, I can show you later. Um, you had to fold them up just so you had to stack them up just so, and you had to have three t-shirts and only three in your locker. And the, the points on the corner of the t-shirt had to form a perfect perpendicular line uh, lining up with the bottom of the locker. And they had to be in this part of the locker. And if you failed in this enormous responsibility, somebody was going to be right here talking to you in loud voices about your mother, your ancestry, um, your IQ levels, and the, your uncanny resemblance to maggots and worms. And they were going... <laughs> Now, if I, if I mess up the T-shirts, if I'm not stacking up the T-shirts right, and somebody's yelling and screaming at me here, am I allowed to retreat into my own mind and think, you know what? The United States Navy has absolutely no sense of proportion. Well, who cares about the T-shirts? Are T-shirts important? No, they're not important at all. And you know what? The Navy no- knew that. The Navy knows that T-shirts aren't important. They could care less about the T-shirts. What they cared about is finding out who could follow instructions and who could not. Right. What they wanted to find out is whether you would be willing to do what you were told, because you're going to be out in the fleet in a few months and you're not, it's not going to be T-shirts. It's going to be a multimillion dollar piece of equipment and other people, other people's lives are going to be dependent on you. And when they say do this, they wanted you to do it right away and they wanted to do it the way they said to do it. And they find out whether you can do that with the T-shirts. In the same way, parents can find out how their kids are doing on this competition thing, considering other things that other people is important by getting a ball involved. All right. And if you get a ball involved and all sorts of gunk comes out, you shouldn't say, oh, no, and close it up again, because that's just going to come out later. It's going to come out later in the marriage. It's going to come out later in business. You need to learn what the Holy Spirit is wanting us all to, to learn. So every human heart has to deal with this. Secondly, learn how justice fits into grace. Don't go the other way. Don't try to fit grace into justice. Grace corrodes when stored in justice. Justice thrives and grows strong when stored in grace. It's better to be taken to the cleaners because you loaned money to someone, expecting nothing back, as Jesus says in Luke 6.35, than to have an evil eye, tight fist, and a wary heart. Mark 7, 22. So learn how to have 
an environment of grace and giving and overflow and sharing in which your concerns of justice function. So the apostle who tells us to bear one another's burdens and to bear our own burdens is the one who says in Thessalonians, if someone, if a member of the church isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. And that's very clear. You shouldn't subsidize laziness. You shouldn't subsidize laziness. At the same point, that at the same time, that ought to be a point that we insist upon because we care about the lazy person. We care for the sluggard. We know he's destroying himself and we want to give him a gift. We want to give him a gift of a work ethic rather than he's a lazy bum. He, you know, I don't want to give him the time of day. Uh, that sort of grasping is not what uh, we should be after. Third, work hard and intelligently expecting your work to not only provide for your family, but also to be a blessing to any brother who is, quote-unquote, competing for the same customers you are. That's impossible, you might say. Tell it to God who traffics in impossibilities. Zero-sum thinking is the logic of hell. It's the logic of unbelief. And zero-sum thinking is views the world this way. Anytime you get more... It's because there's a piece of pie here, and if you get a bigger piece of pie, that means necessarily, logically, automatically, that I get a smaller piece. If you've got a bigger piece, it's because I got a smaller piece, and that is the logic of the world. That's the way it has to be. If you get a bigger piece, it's at my expense. And if I want to take care of my family, then I've got to throw some sharp elbows here. I've got to work in such a way, because if I want a bigger piece, then I know it's regrettable, perhaps, but you're going to have to have a smaller piece because I get a bigger piece. That's zero-sum thinking. Zero-sum thinking ignores the God who made a bountiful world. In God's world, pies grow, right? In God's world, pies grow. If you think there's always fixed a fixed number of resources, you know, we're running out. We're constantly running out. The sky's falling. Everything's falling apart. The logic of that is unbelief in God. God built the world in such a way that crops multiply 30, 60, and 100 fold. God, who created the world, created us to live in it, and the world is capable of holding us. And, and someone might say, yes, but what about the population explosion? What about the, no, God, God's the one who told us to multiply and replenish the earth. God knows what he's doing. And God gives, he overflows. God gives and he overflows. If you assume that zero sum thinking is the way it is, then you're not really serving God. You're some sort of a naturalist. You think, well, how, how can it be for, how can I work in my business here in, um, in Moscow and live in such a way where I believe for me to bear my own burdens and provide for my own family can be a blessing to my brothers and sisters who are living in the same town. How can that be? All right? Well, give it to God. All right? If you compete in a biblical way, if you compete in a godly way, you're not going to be stealing from your brothers and sisters. You're going to be helping them when you have an opportunity. You're going to overflow as you have opportunity. You're going to bear your own burden, and you're going to bear one another's burdens. And I've seen some wonderful, marvelous examples of this, where people people in the church in one business competing with another, when something happens, when there's a trouble, when there's a distress, they loan equipment, or they'll give things, or they'll help out, and they'll rally around. That's the demeanor that you see in Acts chapter 4. Keeping ourselves free from strife or vainglory seems like an overwhelming task sometimes. What are we to do about the outside world, which does not appear to be functioning with this calculus at all? What grasping and ravenous entities are out there? 
Besides Microsoft, the U.S. government, assorted televangelists, the Republicrats, the United Nations, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and, as they say in television, much, much more. What should we do about all that? First, we must not envy them, as, we, as we're taught in Proverbs. We're, the righteous are not supposed to envy the unrighteous. They, they appear to get ahead. They can grasp. They can run. They can cut corners. They do all that. We're not to envy them. That's short-term thinking, and we want to be long-term thinkers, trusting in God. Second, we must not imitate them or their ways. We must not imitate them or their ways. Where they, they assume as axiomatic that more for you is less for me, that fundamental uh, zero-sum assumption must be rejected. If I receive more from God in the right way, more for me is more for you. And I, that's what I want. That's what I'm striving for. And as I'm striving for more for you, as John Bunyan once said, there was a man, some thought, he, thought him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. God reckons that which is given overflow as seed. The one who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, it says. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you uh, sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. And that involves, that, that involves being involved in one another's lives. That involves giving, giving, giving. It's not zero-sum thinking at all. Now, in a limit, if you take a snapshot, you can have a limited area where someone comes in, take the pie illustration, someone comes in and steals your pie. That's a zero-sum arrangement, right? More, more for them is less for you. You had a pie, they took it. All right. So zero sum thinking does have limited reality as perpetrated by people who have zero sum minds. But even there, even there, Christ came into the world in such a way to eliminate all zero sum thinking. What did they do? What did they, when the Messiah came, what did they do to him? They crucified him. They nailed him to a cross. They took away the most valuable thing this world has ever seen, didn't they? Crucified him, and they put him in the ground to rot. And what did God do with that particular instance of zero-sum thinking, of grabbing, grasping, murder? God saved the world with it. That's the salvation of the world. In Jesus Christ, all of this poverty, every kind of poverty in Jesus Christ, it's overcome. Because God is a bountiful God. He's a gracious God. And last, third, we should live in our communities in such a way that when we're dealing with unbelievers outside, we show them a more excellent way. That excellent way is love. Love does not envy. Love does not throw sharp elbows. Love does not jostle. Love does not do all the things that graspers and grabbers do. Love competes in a godly way. Love does not compete in an ungodly way. So when we've been thinking about desire, there's godly desire and ungodly desire. When we considered envy, there's no such thing as godly envy. There's just envy. That's a twisting, a corruption. We come to competition. There's godly competition and ungodly competition. And then when we consider ambition, it's the same. There'll be godly ambition and ungodly ambition. Let's thank the Lord together. Father, we are in the process of becoming a people. And this means that many of us make our living in the same way or in similar ways. Not only that, but there are many other situations where we find ourselves competing. We pray that you would protect us from striving in the wrong way, from throwing sharp elbows, from jostling one another. We pray for the mind of Christ in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to the full series, Desire, Envy, Competition, Ambition. Available now on Canon+. Plus.